Доброго ранку, церква. Good morning, church. Сьогодні ми будемо читати Марка 13 главу. Today we we are going to read the Mark chapter 13. Але перед цим ми хотіли б помолитися разом з вами. But before that, we want to pray with you. Дорогий Господь. Dear God. Дякуємо тобі за цей час. Thank you for that time. За те, що ти з нами, а ми з тобою. We thank you that you're with us and we are with you. Дякую за кожного, хто сьогодні зміг прийти. We are thankful for everybody who came to this place today. І що сьогодні ми можемо слухати твоє слово. And that today we can listen to your word. Дай нам серце, щоб ми відчували тебе сьогодні. Let us uh, let, our, let our heart feel you today. І щоб воно було відкрито до кожного із людей. And so it will be open to every human here. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 to 31. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? No one stone here will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out what no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of words and rumors of words, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. There, um, these are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be, you will be handed over the local councils and flocked in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination, abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then, the, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect from he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, he, there he is, do not believe it. For false Messiah messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give his light, its light. 
the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves comes out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heavenly and earth, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God for the people of God. Коли Ісус виходив із храму, один з його учнів сказав йому, «Учителю, поглянь, які каміння, які будівлі». Ісус сказав йому, «Ти бачиш ці величезні споруди? Не залишиться тут каменя на камені, який не був би зруйнований». Потім, коли Ісус сидів на Оливковій горі, напроти храму Петро, Яків, Іван та Андрій наодинці запитали його, «Скажи нам, коли це все станеться, яка ознака того, що все це скоро здійсниться?» Ісус почав їм говорити, «Дивіться, щоб ніхто не ввів вас в оману, бо багато хто прийде в ім'я моє і казатиме, це я, і багатьох введуть в оману. Коли почуєте про війни та чутки про війни, не лякайтеся, це має статися, але це ще не кінець. Повстане народ проти народу і царство проти царства. У різних місцях будуть землетруси та голод, але це лише початок страждань. Будьте обережні, адже видаватимуть вас до судів і в синагогах битимуть вас». Поведуть вас до правителів та царів заради мене на свідчення їм. Але спочатку добра звістка має проповідитись усім народам. Коли поведуть вас видавати до суду, не турбуйтеся, як і що казати, але говоріть те, що буде в новому той час. Адже не ви будете говорити, а Дух Святий. Брат видасть на смерть брата, а батько дитину. Повстануть діти проти батьків та вбиватимуть їх. І всі будуть ненавидіти вас через ім'я моє». Але хто витримає до кінця, той буде спасений. Коли побачите гидоту спустошення, що сидить там, де їй не слід, хто читає, нехай зрозуміє, тоді ті, що в Іудеї, нехай тікають в гори. Той, хто буде на даху, хай не сходить і не входить, аби взяти щось з голодому. Той, хто в полі, хай не вертається взяти свою одежу. Гори вагідними і тим, що будуть годувати грудьми в ті дні. Моліться, щоб це не сталося взимку». Бо в ті дні буде таке страждання, якого не було від початку світу, що його створив Бог. Дотепер і ніколи не буде. І якби Господь не скоротив тих днів, то жодна людина не була врятована. Але заради обраних, яких Він обрав, Господь скоротив ті дні. Якщо ті, хто скаже вам, ось тут Христос, ось Він там, не вірте, бо постануть вже хрести та вже пророки робитимуть знамення та чудеса, щоб ввести вас в оману, якщо можливо і обраних. Ви ж стережіться, я про все попередив вас. Але в ті дні, після тих страждань, сонце померне, і місяць не буде світити, зірки впадуть із неба, і стили небесні затихаються. Тоді побачить сина людського, який приходить на хмарах із великою силою та славою. Тоді він надійшли ангелів, і вони заберуть його обраних із чотирьох вітрів від одного краю землі до краю неба. Від смоковниці навчиться її притчі, коли гілка стає вже м'якою, пускає листя, ви знаєте, що літо близько. Так і ви, коли побачите, що це відбувається, знаєте, прихід близько, уже біля дверей. Істинно кажу вам, не мене цей рід, поки все це станеться. Небо та земля проминуть, але словами не проминуть. Амінь. Боже Слово для Божих людей.
Uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Mike. I'm the discipleship director here at Seoul. And the passage we're focusing on this morning, it's a big one. It's a, it's a big one. Um, and it's been read for us this morning. Uh, and this corporate reading of, of Scripture is a newer practice for us here at Seoul, but has been done throughout church history. And it's a practice that seeks to, to highlight and honor the Word of God passed down to us by setting apart a person or people uh, and a time to read Scripture. Not only this, but it allows the joint participation of the church community. Our local church, along with the global church, um, is made up of people, as Scripture puts it, from every tribe and every tongue. It's a kingdom of diversity unified around Jesus and His way of kingdom living. And as we read Scripture together, hear the different tongues in our community, this reality is brought to the forefront of our minds. It's a powerful practice uh, that we're excited to continue in. And so turning to our passage this morning, Jesus has just finished challenging the teachers of the law and their view of who they believed the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited king who will rule forever, who he will actually be. And these teachers, along with all those that they taught, including Jesus' own disciples, at a, for a time anyway, believed that this Messiah would be a warrior king coming to vanquish their enemies using the tools of hate and violence. However, as we learned two weeks ago, the Messiah was to be a suffering servant, one who would love and sacrifice himself for the sake of all humanity. And Mark has been pointing to Jesus as this true Messiah. And having attempted to correct this misguided expectation, Jesus now leaves the temple with his disciples. And so Mark recounts in, oh yeah, speaking of which, this, like I said, this is a longer passage, so I'm not going to be necessarily reading it all again. So I invite you to turn to Mark 13 uh, and follow along uh, when I talk about the different verses through here. But Mark uh, recounts, as I said, in chapter 13, starting in verse 1, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Biblical scholars have, have pointed out, and if we actually read with a bit of a watchful eye, we can see that the roles of prophet, priest, and king are crucial themes throughout the Old Testament and are in fact later picked up by the New Testament authors to describe Jesus. He is in essence and actuality both performing and fulfilling the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And in this passage, Jesus is very much playing the prophet. And so in order to understand what Jesus is doing here and what he's saying then, we need to understand the role that a prophet played in the Old Testament. Mainstream media often portrays a prophet as some kind of fortune or future teller or someone announcing doom and gloom and the end of the world. However, in the Old Testament, these people are primarily what, what could be described as covenant watchdogs for the people of Israel. God, desiring to keep his covenant promise with Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations as shown in Genesis 12, 15, and 26, invites his descendants, the Israelites, 
into covenant relationship with him. The people promised to live by God's wisdom, and God in turn promised them that if they do, they will remain in his presence and experience all the benefits that that would entail. However, he also warns the people that if they, choose, if they chose to live by their own wisdom, much like Adam and Eve did back in the garden, they would have to leave God's presence and in so doing, experience the greater reality of life in a fallen and broken world, a world of violence and destruction. And so when Israel started to stray from their covenant promises, living by the world's wisdom rather than God's, the prophets came to remind them of their covenant to God and the consequences of their actions if they chose to continue uh, going down their desired path. That if they were no longer remaining faithful to God, they would soon experience life outside of God's presence, experiencing destruction and exile at the hands of the empires of their day, which were Assyria and then later Babylon. The prophet's words were always primarily about the now and foreseeable future, attempting to call Israel back to faithfulness. However, some of these words also began to take on a secondary nature of revealing a time where a similar judgment will come, not just to a fallen Israel and their conquerors, but to all people and nations who choose the way of evil. And we're seeing this in Jesus' own words here in our passage this morning. Jesus is primarily speaking judgment on Israel, but he's also whispering of a future time of judgment when he returns. And so in order to understand his words about the future, we must first understand his words to Israel and his first disciples. So why is Jesus playing the role of a prophet, speaking about the coming destruction of not only the temple, but all of Jerusalem? And this is because Jerusalem and the people of Israel were no longer who they were supposed to be. In fact, most of Israel's history was them failing to live up to the call God had placed on them. Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, was meant to be a city of blessing. As the nation walked in God's wisdom, living generously with one another, taking care of the orphan, widow, and foreigner, loving God with all of their soul and might as they're commanded to do in Deuteronomy 6, and loving their neighbor as themselves from Leviticus 19, they would be a witness of God's goodness to the world and to the nations around them, bringing blessing to them and welcoming all to come worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. However, as we see throughout the Old Testament, as I said, Israel ultimately failed at fulfilling this potential. Instead, they pursued the so-called wisdom of the nations around them. For those of you who like reading uh, fantasy fiction like I do, you may have already read George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series or what he's completed uh, up to this point. And if you haven't read the books, it's initially about a kingdom whose noble families are all vying for power, trying to take uh, the throne for themselves and rule over everyone else. And one great quote from his first book was one of the antagonists who was vying for ultimate power, telling one of the naive protagonists who was trying to expose them that when you play the game of thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. And this quote has stuck with me uh, 
since I've read this book, and I think it's because it reveals actually the way of the world. Every great city, nation, or empire throughout history has sought after power, desiring to be on top of everyone else. And all these nations have risen, and then they've fallen. They've won until someone else rises up and conquers them in turn. The Israel of the Old Testament eventually would concern themselves with the affairs of other nations, desiring the best economy, the best army, the best leaders, and trying to have their turn on top. And in so doing, the rulers of Israel turned from seeking God to their own desires and ended up oppressing their people rather than caring for them the way God called them to. And these were the very choices that led to the prophet's warnings to turn back to God. And the Israel and Jerusalem of Jesus' day was no different. We actually see this in their expectation for a warrior king rather than a suffering servant and the life they chose to live, oppressing widows and the vulnerable like we learned last week. And like the Israel of the Old Testament, this was not who they were meant to be. Jerusalem and the temple, the very places meant to shine the light of God, caring for these people, had become a machine of corruption and oppression. And Jesus, seeing the trajectory that they were on, reveals that it's now too late for the Jerusalem they had made, one in the image of the world rather than the image of God. And so they will face the consequences of playing the Game of Thrones with a bigger, badder empire like Rome. These are the words Jesus speaks in verses 3 to 8 and 14 to 22. Some people today like to lump the, all these verses with what Jesus says at the end concerning his return, thinking that he's speaking about one future event at the end of the world. However, most biblical scholars agree that what we see here in these particular verses concern the coming fall of Jerusalem, not the end of the world. And Jesus begins by telling his disciples that they will hear of wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters and famines, all things that might cause a person to panic that Jerusalem's end had come. However, he tells them that these are not signs of the end, but the coming end. And so in verses 14 to 22, Jesus then describes in a bit of cryptic detail for the modern reader that there will come a day when Jerusalem will fall and that the sign of that time is when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. And so this is, this is a hotly debated verse, but all biblical scholars agree that he's quoting from the book of Daniel, and most scholars agree that to understand what Jesus is getting at here, we need to understand Daniel and his use of this strange term. So in a nutshell, Daniel talks about a fall of Jerusalem as well, a fall that had already happened by the time of Jesus at the hands of a Greco-Syrian king named Antiochus. And the abomination of desolation in Daniel, with the hindsight of history, described the time when Antiochus came, destroyed Jerusalem sacked the temple, put up idols of Greek gods in it, and sacrificed pigs on the altar, an abomination to the Jewish people, 
as not only were idols being worshipped instead of God, but the altar had been profaned by pig's blood, a religiously impure animal not acceptable for sacrifice and use in worship. And so Jesus is revealing to his disciples that something similar will happen again. And that when they see foreign armies surrounding Jerusalem once again, it's actually time to run away, not putting their hope in nationalist sentiment like Israel's leaders at the time were calling for, but rather to hope in Jesus. And ultimately, the destruction Jesus warns of here in these verses became reality in 70 AD when the future Roman emperor Titus surrounded the city. Just a few years prior to that, the leaders of Israel actually succeeded in convincing the nation to rise up in violence against Roman oppression, and Rome had had enough. A Jewish historian and military officer of the day named Josephus describes in detail the fall of Jerusalem, and it's a haunting account. If you want to read it, it's all free online. But with the Roman legions surrounding them, most people didn't flee from, but rather towards the city and behind its walls, contrary to what followers of Jesus were encouraged to do and had actually done themselves. With nowhere to go, the Romans simply had to wait, which resulted in famine throughout the city and the grisly reality that that produces. Not only that, but the Jewish people started fighting amongst themselves, vying for control of a city soon to be destroyed, many of whom tried to garner support by claiming to be the Messiah now finally here, a reality that Jesus also warned his disciples about in these verses. And so with the city too weak to fight, Titus destroyed the walls they had all trusted in, set up images of the emperor to be worshipped, and his men destroyed the temple much like Antiochus had done centuries before. The abomination of desolation had come to Jerusalem once again, and Jesus' words of judgment to a city that looked more like the kingdom of Rome than of God were fulfilled. So Jesus, in verses 3 to 8, told his disciples that they, what they might perceive to be the signs of the fall of Jerusalem will only be its, uh, signs of its coming fall. And in verses 14 to 23, he tells them what it would look like when that time finally arrived and that they should run when they see it. In verses 9 to 13 now, in between these two passages, is Jesus telling his disciples what to expect for themselves in that in-between time of that day speaking with Jesus and Jerusalem's destruction. And so in the, in the New Living Translation, Jesus says in Mark uh, 13, verses 9 to 13, when these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death, a father will betray his own children, and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." 
Verses 9 and 13 explain why they will experience all of these things. Because they are his followers. While the game of thrones is raging on between nations near and far, his disciples follow after a different kind of king and thus are a part of and pursue a very different kind of kingdom. We learned two weeks ago what kind of king Jesus was a suffering servant who calls all to follow him. But now, what kind of kingdom are his followers called to be a part of? And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. This incredibly rich and groundbreaking teaching can actually be viewed as the kingdom manifesto of Jesus, offering God's redeemed alternative to living life in the way of the world. It's a description of God's kingdom ethic, the very ethic embodied by Jesus and what life should look like for those living anew in the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom where its people seek forgiveness when they've wronged others with their actions or words. Where its people don't retaliate when they've been hurt or wronged, but rather respond with generosity. Where its people choose to love their enemies, to pray for and bless them even when they're receiving the opposite in return. And it's a kingdom where its people are generous with what they have, trusting in a God who provides rather than being ruled by anxiety. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's so much more to this kingdom than just these, but to live this way is to live in faithfulness to the love-filled and sacrificial way of Jesus. And he bookends this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, saying that those who are part of this kingdom living in this way are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, as he says in Matthew 5.14, and are also like people who are like a wise man who built his house on a rock, as he says in Matthew 7.24. And interestingly, the, the Greek word translated as house here, uh, I mean, in, in, in Hebrew as well, um, isn't just describing a house, it's also describing the temple. And so followers of Jesus pursuing his kingdom rather than the world's become like Jerusalem themselves, a city built on a rocky hill, fulfilling God's call to be a light and blessing to all of the world, just like Israel was meant to be. God's kingdom is, a very, is very different to those of the world, then and now. It's a kingdom based on loving and serving all, even our enemies, in the, ways, in the way of Jesus, breaking the cycle of hate and violence that all other kingdoms rise and fall on. So, moving back to Mark 13, Jesus, in verses 9 to 13, reveals to his, to his disciples what they are to be doing in the in-between times they will find themselves in, between the birth pains, the rumblings of wars and natural disasters elsewhere, and the actual destruction of Jerusalem. They're to continue being his followers and live out his kingdom amongst the warring kingdoms of the world, even if that means it will lead to their suffering. This is, of course, no easy task, but it is the call Jesus gives his followers. Jesus reveals 
that his disciples will be handed over to the Jewish council and synagogues and that they'll stand before governors and kings so that the gospel would make its way to all other nations. And this is exactly what is miraculously lived out in the book of Acts. Peter and John in the early chapters are brought before the council and are reprimanded and beaten for doing the things Jesus did and claiming that he had risen from the dead. The apostles, all of them, were later imprisoned by the high priest, only to be set free by an angel to continue proclaiming Jesus and his kingdom. Stephen, while not one of the apostles, but presumably one of Jesus' first disciples, was stoned to death for being one of his followers. And using his last breath, he didn't condemn or curse his murderers like this world would beckon him to, but rather he shouted for God to forgive them, choosing to live from God's kingdom even in his death. And finally, in the closing chapters of Acts, Paul, once a condemner of Christ, now follower of him, was brought before Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, and Rome's puppet king of Judea, Agrippa the outcome of which sends Paul to Rome to argue his case before the emperor himself. And it's an outcome that ultimately led to the gospel being proclaimed to all nations as it spread from the very heart of the Roman Empire out into the known world. Now, what, is, what Jesus calls his closest disciples to was not actually unique to them, but was for all of his followers. As we follow the stories of the early leaders of the church in Acts, we see how they encourage the people of the church to live during these times as well in the New Testament letters. The first letter of Peter was likely written when Peter was imprisoned in Rome between 62 and 64 AD to Christians living in what is now modern-day Turkey. And these Christians were experiencing hostility, growing hostility and harassment as widespread persecution of Christians was slowly starting to rise at that time. And Peter wrote them to encourage them. And he begins in chapter 1 by likening suffering to a purifying fire that if walked through the right way, won't destroy but actually deepen their faith. He then encourages them in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, saying, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the, foolish, the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Other translations translate that as, but living as slaves of God. Honor everyone, everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In the midst of rising persecution, not only at the local uh, level, but also at the state level, Peter, like Jesus in our passage this morning, is encouraging followers of Jesus to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive, and to love rather than violently rebel, because that is what Jesus did, keeping in line with God's kingdom as it was outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. So too in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 and verse 19, Peter says, the end of all things is near. 
Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's clear how Peter has been changed by Jesus. This is a very different person than the one who rebuked Jesus when he told them that as the Messiah, he was going to be rejected and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. Or the man who was willing to raise his sword and strike at those coming to capture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, he is telling followers of Jesus that the end is near, and so they should continue loving and serving like Christ. To trust God and continue pursuing his kingdom despite uncertainty and suffering. It's as if Peter had in mind the words Jesus shared with him and the others in Mark 13 about what to expect uh, before the fall of Jerusalem, concluding those verses by saying, and everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's clear that up to this point in our passage, Jesus is revealing the coming judgment of Jerusalem for pursuing the ways of the world rather than those of God and what his followers should be doing in the meantime. But how is this passage meant to instruct and encourage us today? And this is where we turn to the rest of our passage this morning. Mark uh, 13, verses 24 to 27 says, but in those days, following the distress, after the sacking of Jerusalem... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Jesus has just finished speaking of one end, the fall of Jerusalem. And here, he now briefly speaks about another end, the fall of the kingdom of this world. The strange language about the sun and moon not giving off their light uh, and stars falling is Jesus quoting from various passages of the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, all of which in context are speaking about the time when God will come, judge, and rid the world of all evil. And so Jesus is speaking of his return, bringing with him in full the kingdom of God. And this is actually meant to cause us to hope. There will come a day when Jesus will return, where he'll hold evil and those who pursue it to account and raise up, justify, and prove right in their choice those who follow the way of the suffering servant king and his kingdom. And like the earliest disciples living between the time leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, his disciples today, us, are also living in an in-between time that will come to a close when Jesus returns. And so what he encourages his disciples then to do between the times is what we are to do between ours. Follow him and his kingdom, not someone else and the world's. 
We're to pursue the kingdom of God as embodied in the example of Jesus and as that's outlined in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're to do so even in times of uncertainty and suffering, just like Jesus and his early followers. In fact, we're told by Peter in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 4 to rejoice in suffering if we're suffering for the good that we're called to in Christ. Because this is the very example Jesus has set for us. The reality is, though, thankfully, you know, we don't really experience much, much suffering for faith in Canada. However, if you're, if you're made fun of, if you're excluded, or someone won't associate with you at school, work, or in your family because you're seeking Jesus and his kingdom, then the encouragement here is to keep going, keep persevering, and especially keep loving and serving those people just like Jesus did. Rather than clamor for your rights or seek retaliation or hold on to unforgiveness, we're to remember the Sermon on the Mount. And we're to remember that there will come a day when all of that will be gone and we're in front of Jesus hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. There's certainly more intense persecution around the world and who knows that might be Canada one day but perhaps our greatest threat to following Jesus and his kingdom in more affluent countries like ours is not the world's violence, but its temptations. To be enticed to seeking status, importance, wealth, to pursue being served rather than serving, and to hate anyone who we might deem our enemies. The encouragement and perhaps warning For this is to remember that this is not the king we follow nor the kingdom that we're a part of. And that we're not to be like the teachers of the law from the chapter before seeking these things. And we're not to be like Jerusalem and the kingdoms of this world being judged in our chapter this morning. And the unfortunate thing is that there's no clear five-step plan to follow in order to achieve this. Life is simply too nuanced uh, for that. Rather, it's a life lived in humble obedience to Jesus, loving God and loving anyone that crosses our path. And to actually do this well, we need to regularly reflect on what kingdoms we're actually a part of and following. God calls us to intentional reflection. Pastor Jordan last week mentioned, I think kind of offhandedly, but it's something that really struck me, was that much of life is done on autopilot with very little thought given to it. And when we live life this way, we actually end up thinking or being a part of things that we think are right and good, but actually aren't. That we think are actually the way of God and his kingdom, but actually aren't. And God, like a good father, wants us to come to him and ask him to show us where we're straying from his kingdom and to turn back to him and his ways. Uh, Very simple, like a very simple practice if you want to put this into practice in your your daily life. Uh, David has a great prayer for us to use for this in Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 to 24, where he prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Uh, if you want a little bit more uh, structure and a more depth into, into this process, uh, something else you could do is take time at the end of your day and spend time in what's called the prayer of examine. It's a, it's a, uh, sorry, a simple framework that you can follow for this prayer is invite, thank, reflect, and repent or rejoice. And this process can be as short as, as 10 minutes. I've done it before within that length of time where, where we begin our time inviting the Holy Spirit to come and help us be aware that we are in God's presence. And this can be as simple as praying, come Holy Spirit, and then spending two minutes in silence, kind of orienting yourself to God's presence. We then move to thanking God for the good things in our day. Even the worst day has things to be thankful for if only we look. And then the majority of time is then spent reflecting with God back on our day. And this is where we replay the day from beginning to end as best we can, even the most mundane moments. And as we do that, we ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we've been pursuing God's kingdom. Where have we felt God's presence today? Who did we encourage or where did we respond well to a stressful situation? Things like these. However, we also ask where we did not pursue God's kingdom and his ways. Where did we feel far from God? Did we hurt anyone in word or deed? And how could we pursue forgiveness? Were we hurt? And how can we forgive them? Did we respond in anger or fear to a stressful situation? And then finally, move to a time of rejoicing in the areas we pursued God well. God wants us to rejoice in that. And then also repenting and asking forgiveness for the times we weren't. Then we simply end thanking God for what he's shown us and commit to walk in his ways for the next day. Finally, if that's too intense of a prayer practice to start with and you need time to get to that point, which is absolutely fair, I certainly needed that time uh, to get to that point, then we can actually commit to praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, morning, midday, and evening. A few weeks ago, Piper mentioned the ancient Jewish prayer practice of praying the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Something all faithful Israelites, including Jesus and his followers, prayed three times a day. As the early church grew, this practice continued, but then also shifted to praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And most of us actually uh, likely have a version of this prayer memorized, and it only takes a few seconds to pray. And despite its short length, this is an incredibly powerful prayer. Imagine three times a day praying to God with a little bit of intentionality and reflection, your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how this could lead us to see the areas of, of life where we're pursuing a very different kingdom. Or the regular reminder to actually live out God's alternative kingdom expressed in the Sermon on the Mount by, by praying, give us our daily bread. Not just, not just me, but everyone around me, including the homeless I passed by uh, to go pick up a Safeway sandwich because it's lunchtime and also happens to be the time to pray this prayer. This is an easy practice that only requires us to set a recurring reminder on our phones in a total of five minutes throughout our day. And it's amazing, it's amazing what God can do in us and through us with a bit of intentionality and reflection. 
It's all he actually needs to start showing us where in our lives we're seeking after a different kingdom and to encourage us in the areas where we are following his so that we can live in our in-between time, regardless of uncertainty or suffering, in the way of Jesus. This is actually our opportunity to put this into practice and invite God to search our hearts. It's a time for us to confess the areas we are not pursuing his ways and a time to realign ourselves to him. And so to guide this time, I'm going to pray the words uh, of David. And I encourage you as you're sitting and, and reflecting in this moment, praying in this moment, open your Bibles to Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24 and pray and reflect on these words during this time as well. So I'll, I'll pray. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. So in ancient times, the one who offered a blessing raised their hands and those wanting to receive a blessing did likewise. Soul Sanctuary, a blessing of St. Paul from Philippians 1. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Amen. Now go live the church and we'll see you next week.